as you're making it way back to your seats, if you'll remain standing, I'd like to pray over us and for us as we come to God's Word this morning. Again, because of the passage of Scripture and studying Daniel, we won't uh, read the text out loud. It's a long text, and so I'll just pray as we get started this morning. Would you pray with me? God, I'm so grateful for you. I'm grateful that you are in control of all things, and you do hold our lives in your hand as just sing over us. I pray that that truth would begin to take root in our lives, and we'd really believe that. So God, I give you this morning, I give you the preaching and the teaching of your word. I pray that uh, the seed would be planted, and you would do the watering and the reaping of the seed that's planted. Be honored and glorified in everything that we do, say, and think in this place. Amen. You may be seated. You were with us last week. We are beginning to journey through the book of Daniel, uh, a prophet of God that was given to the people, uh, in particular to the king, to really rebuke the king and what he was doing. We'll see that this morning in this text. And we'll see how Daniel was put in place where God wanted him. We call that the sovereignty of God. The definition of the sovereignty of God, if you'd like to write it down, is this. It's the biblical teaching that God possesses all power and is the ruler of all things. God rules and works according to his eternal purpose, even through events that seem to contradict or oppose his, his rule. So the sovereignty of God, we believe here at Powell's Chapel, is that God is in control of all things. Amen? And so we read this book throughout its entirety. We won't spend any time uh, verses from chapter 7 on, but the first six chapters, uh, we'll look at the sovereignty of God. How God is in control over all things, even when it doesn't appear that He is. I don't know if you've ever had that happen in your life, that you uh, question, is God really in control? Well, God's Word says He's always in control. And so we, the people of God, can find rest in God and rest in our circumstances because He's sovereign and in control of everything. Amen? So whatever comes our way, it doesn't catch God by surprise, though it catches us by surprise. We've seen that here over the last few months. We've seen things that look way out of our control. We've had different ailments come into our family here at Powell's Chapel. Cancer and sickness and therefore, and all of us were standing in shock of those things. But there was one who wasn't in shock of any of those things. Amen? That's God's sovereignty. That's God's rule. That's God's control. And so this morning we come back to the text with the idea that God is sovereign in control of everything, not some things. And so whatever you are are feeling this morning, whatever level of anxiety or depression or anger or hurt or whatever it is, we'll see in this text that God is still sovereign in control of everything, and that's where Daniel's able to rest in this passage. We'll see the men that don't follow the Lord are caught up with a ton of anxiety. But Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are trusting in the sovereignty of God, the control of God, that he is in control. We'll see that throughout these six chapters. And so that's where we're at this morning. Again, that God is sovereign in control of all things. We'll, we'll look at a few things this morning. We're going to look at Daniel chapter 2, verses 1 through 23. This is the, the famous uh, dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. We'll do the interpretation of the dream, 
uh, in, in a few weeks. Uh, next week, Brother Frank will be coming to teach him from God's Word, and then we'll celebrate Easter, and then we'll come back to Daniel chapter 2, but we'll look at the, uh, the, the dream and how it's interpreted. But this morning, we're going to look at the dream itself and the, all that that goes into. And so this morning, we're going to look at the problem, the prayer, the praise, and the provider. So again, the problem, the prayer, the praise, and the provider. We'll, we'll see that out the gates. The problem is found in verses 1 through 16. I'll read some of it, and I'll teach. I'll read some and teach through the first 16 verses. It says this, in the second year, and circle that in your Bible, you may be thinking, well, I thought the first chapter said the third year, now the second year. This is all very confusing. Well, it's not confusing because some of the book is written in Aramaic and some of it is written in Hebrew, and so this is talking from the Hebrew calendar, so don't be confused by that. So in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. I don't know if you've ever had dreams like that. Anyone in the room? Okay, I guess I'm the lone, uh, the lone ranger in the room. I'll tell you one that reoccurs all the time for me. It happened, it started about uh, five and a half years ago. And I have had the dream uh, probably once a month for the last five years. And I wake up with totally anxious, like totally wanting to pull my hair out, Sometimes on the verge of tears, sometimes needing to change the sheets uh, because of sweat, because I'm just so anxious about it. What all started when I got into my last semester of grad school. And they have these things called the comp exams. Well, I have terrible test anxiety to begin with. Well, the comp exam is to give you everything you've covered in the last three years of grad school. You sit down and take one test to go over everything you've learned for three years. Uh, that's anxious enough. But here's the deal. You have two chances to pass it. Well, so I got uh, prepared for the first test and thought, man, I'm going to crush this thing. I had studied and studied and studied. And, and in grad school, my lowest grade on anything uh, in a class was a B plus. So I thought, man, I had this thing whipped. And I studied for days and weeks and months prior to that test. I got in there uh, to this little room full of people, and it was like my brain shut off. Anyone ever had that experience before? Like, man, I'm totally prepared. I got this thing. It's going to be no sweat. I sit down. I have a number two pencil. Why has it got to be a number two pencil? What about a number one pencil? But no, it's got to be a number two pencil. Sit down with a sharpened pencil uh, and eraser and begin to, f- like, T-O. Like, my name is frozen. Like, it takes me... Two and a half minutes, it feels like, just to write my name. I get to the very first question, and I have no idea what the, the answer is. And, and it's like the basic 101 counseling question. Like the, the basic of a, the basics. Do you, like, I, I don't remember it, but it's this basic. Do you become a friend with a client? The answer is no. Like, that's called a dual relationship. I know that. I'm sitting there, and I'm like, well... I mean, I mean, kind of, uh, and it felt like that test took five hours to do. So I get done, I'm like, okay, this is not going to end well. I get my score back, and it didn't end well. I did not pass with flying colors. I failed with flying colors. And I thought, how have I been doing this 
for this long, and I don't know any of the answers. I think I had to get a 60 on the test. I think I may, at best shot, got a 45, at best shot. I thought, man, I'm in trouble, because if I don't pass it again, I got to take some classes over. I thought, oh, no. So I go, and I begin to prepare again for several weeks, and those several weeks pass, and I finally pass the comp exam, but now there's a dream that reoccurs every month, like, like clockwork. Like, I wake up and think, oh, gosh, oh, gosh, the test, the test, the test, the test. And I'm like, man, I've been out of school for five years. There's no test to be taken. But for about two and a half minutes until I kind of wake up, I really think, man, this is the morning of the test. And I, man, for, the, for like the whole, I don't really sleep in, at night, I toss and turn. Like, that is what happens here to King Nebuchadnezzar. He's sleeping, and it says in the passage that what? His spirit was troubled. Like, he is he's so troubled by his dreams that it says what? He had a troubled spirit, and his sleep left him. Man, I, I don't know anything worse than a troubled, restless spirit. Like, laying in bed and trying to go to sleep. Anyone ever had that? Like, like wide awake and just thinking, man, I just want to go to sleep. And finally you fall asleep, and you wake back up, and you're like, man, it's only been a minute and a half. Thank you. Well, that's what's going on here with King Nebuchadnezzar. He has this dream, and it's an ongoing dream. See the word? It said he had, he had dreams that caused him to have restless nights. And his spirit had left him over and over and over again. So we begin to see the problem. The problem's the dream, but the problem gets worse. Right? It says, then the king commanded that the magicians and the enchanters and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. And so here it is. He's having these dreams. He calls the best of the best, what we would call the wise men, the same, the magi, if you will, to come in. And the magi were to, to be dream interpreters. And they had books and books and books on what dreams meant. And so they would look at all their books to decide what the dream meant. And so he calls the wisest of the wise in the land and says to them, hey, I had a dream and I need you to interpret it. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will show you the interpretation. Catch this. Then the king answered the Chaldeans, the word from me is firm. Here's the next problem. His spirit is so troubled, he can't remember his dream. Like, here he's calling all the wise men in the land to come to hear the dream, and yet they come, and in that moment of anxiety, he forgets the dream. See, that's a problem. You see, they're here to interpret a dream. Well, they got to know the dream to interpret the dream. And so what do they say back to the king? Then the king said, it is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb to limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. Uh, If I'm a Chaldean, a wise man, I'm thinking, oh no. I'm about to get dismembered. Because you're telling me to tell you something, but you don't even know what you're telling me to tell you. What? 
And so here all these wise men are sitting in front of the king, and he's saying to them two things. Catch this. This is the graphic part in the text. I'm going to tear you limb from limb, meaning either he's going to cut them to pieces or have them pulled to pieces. And then he says this, even more shame upon that. In your houses, that means all of your people, they're going to be in houses that lay in ruin. The word ruin in the text is you're going to have dung hills. That's not like a trampled down house, a dung hill. You can take your interpretation and make your interpretation out of that. So you're going to get torn limb to limb, and your families are going to live and dump feces. That's what the king is saying. I don't know about you, but that would cause some anxiety to rise in me. So the king told him what was going to happen. Verse 6. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me the gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. So all of a sudden he shames them. With, you can't do it, but if you do do it, I'm going to give you some rewards. I, I don't know if that's ever happened to you. Like knowing you can't do something, and yet it's like dangling a carrot in front of you. Like that's what the king's doing. Like, hey, I'm going to tell you something. You're not going to be able to do it. And if you are able to do it, I'm going to give you everything you want. Which they're thinking to themselves, that's impossible. We'll hear that in the text. So here the king is dangling a carrot in front of the wise men. And then he goes on to shame them even more. The problem gets worse and worse and worse. The dream isn't the problem. The, the lack of knowing the dream is the problem. And they answer him a second time. Let the king tell the servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered him and said, I, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time. Of course we are. Uh, like, duh, you just told us if we don't tell you what the dream means, you're going to tear us limb to limb, but you're not telling us the dream. So yeah, we're going to uh, take some time. Because you see that the word for me is firm. Yep. And, and this is a wicked king. Right? Remember Nebuchadnezzar. Like, he's going to throw three men into a fire in the next chapter, and, uh, and then he's going to throw Daniel into the lion's den. Those are very graphic, gruesome ways to kill somebody. That's just a snapshot of what this man was doing prior and post these events. And so they knew the, 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 the king was firm. They knew he was truthful. They knew he was halfway crazy. Because you see that the word is from me is firm. Verse 9. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you show me the, the interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demands. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician, magician enchanter, or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult. And no one can show it to the king. Catch this. Except the gods who dwell not with flesh. 
even the wisest of the wisest of the wisest knew that there was something called God's sovereignty. Even unbelievers in their core, when it comes right down to it, know that there has to be someone that's in control. That's the sovereignty of God. And that's what these wise men said. They said to themselves, hey, we can't do it, but you're asking for something that there has to be someone who can do it. See, God's sovereignty isn't just for us believers. It's for the unbeliever. Amen? He's in control. They at least acknowledge the problem and acknowledge the solution. They at least know, hey, we're not sovereign in control of all things. As smart as we are, as bright as we are, we still don't have the answer for you. And then what happens? Nebuchadnezzar goes cuckoo in the cuckoo's nest. Because of this, the truth, because of the truth, because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded all the wise men of Babylon to be destroyed. All means all. Remember in chapter 1, who became the wise men? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were part now of the wise men. You see, in chapter 1, it looks like God's sovereign in control of all things, and Daniel's been placed in the king's throne room for the purpose of God. And now in chapter 2, it's like God has made a mistake. Wait, okay, God, you knew you were going to get us placed in the kingdom to be wise, and now in chapter 2, our lives are at risk? In your sovereignty? Yep. You see, it's what C.S. Lewis said about the great lion, Aslan. He's not safe. He's good and he's fair. But God is not a safe God. You see, that's not safety. If you're looking for safety in God, you've come to the wrong God. We have a just God and a good God and a kind God. But if you want to be tethered to God, it's not going to be safe. How do we know that? Look at all the people in the Word of God. You think it was safe for Jesus to walk with God? No, it killed him. That's not safety. That's goodness, and that's kindness, and that's mercy, and that's love. Do you think for Peter to get hung upside down on a cross was safe? No. See, God's sovereignty isn't safe, but it's good, and it's kind. And it's merciful and it's just, but it's not safe. If you're looking for safety, you're looking for the wrong God. We don't have a safe God in the way we think of safety. Oh, he's good and he's kind and he's righteous. And he's loving and he's caring. But he's going to call you and me to live outside of safety all the time. It's called persecution. We talked about that in 1 Peter. So he gets angry and says, I want every wise man to be killed. And so the decree, verse 13, went out and the wise men were about to be killed. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion. You see, Daniel replied not with anxiety or depression, but he, he replied with what? wisdom and might and strength and courage because he knew God was what sovereign and in control of all things so if God wanted him to die he'll die so he's able to have boldness because of the sovereignty of God do we have boldness because of 
the sovereignty of God? Are we still looking for safety? You see, safety in that moment for Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were to go make up a story, to go interpret a dream, to go fake the dream, or to run or to flee. And what does it say that Daniel did? Then Daniel replied to, to the, the captain of the king's guard who had gone out to kill the wise men. Here's the grim reaper at his house. And he speaks to the grim reaper, the destinant. And he says to the man that's holding his life in his hand, he said, what is this decree of the king so urgent? And he made the matter known to Daniel. And then Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him time. You see, Daniel went outside of safety. Remember what it just said about the king. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious. He wanted all the wise men to die. Why would a wise man go in front of the king that wanted to put him to death? Because he believed in the sovereignty of God. And he gave him great boldness and courage to talk to the king. Because obeying God and walking with God was more important to Daniel than Daniel's own life. So he walks in with great boldness and confidence to the throne room of God. And he says to him, hey, give me some time. Just give me a little bit more time. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him time that he might show the interpretation to the, to the king. You see, that's the problem. There's a huge problem. The king, the most powerful man in the universe, outside of God, King Nebuchadnezzar, has a dream. He goes to the wise man. The wise man can't figure it out. He, Daniel gets word of it and says, hey, I'll help solve the problem. So there is a problem. And what does da Daniel do? And well, you could teach this uh, for days. Look at Daniel's response. He goes in, makes a request to the king, and then what's his next response? Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to his three friends and to his companions and told them what? Circle this in your Bible. Told them all that was going on, told them that their life was in danger, and what does he say to them? He says, seek mercy from God. You see, Daniel was a man of prayer. You see, Daniel knew the problem, and Daniel himself knew he didn't have the answer to the problem, but he knew the one that was sovereign and in control of all things had the answer to the problem. And so what did he do? He spent time in prayer. And now I'm guilty of this. So often, when I find a problem, you know where I go for my solution? The internet. Right? I got a medicine problem, I go to WebMD. That's a bad idea every single time. It never ends well. You got a hangnail, and then all of a sudden, you're like about to die within two and a half minutes. I mean, that's, that's the WebMD. But I'm telling you, when a problem comes my way, my tendency is not to go to the one that has the solution. It's to go to the world, and the world has every solution, but has no solution. And being the man that Daniel was, a man of prayer, it says this. He went to God in prayer. I think it's what Paul is getting at in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says this, Indeed, if we felt that we had received the sentence of death, did Daniel not? 
But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raised, raises the dead. He delivered us from such deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted to us through the prayers of many. What happens in the desperate time of the problem? Daniel goes to prayer, and what does it say? It says, seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so, Dan so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men in Babylon. And so here we see these men of God, godly men, seek God's counsel. They didn't huddle up and talk about what they knew best. You see, these were the wisest of the wisest. They didn't huddle up together to say, hey, what's the plan? What's the game plan? They got alone in their prayer closet and prayed to God because God has all the, all the answers all the time. Do we believe that? You see, it's easy for us in this moment to say amen, but what do our actions show this afternoon? You see, I can say amen that, that I believe in prayer, I believe the power of prayer, I believe the God who I'm praying to, but where do I turn when the problem hits? That's going to be the truth. That will be the truth. You see, I, I believe this with all my heart. With all my heart. I do the job I do as a counselor. But I believe this with all my heart. That so often, I, the counselor, become the first solution. See, I'm not there to be the first solution. I'm there to be a part of the solution. But God is the ultimate solution. And so I often wonder, I can't ask the question, I just want to say when they sit down, how long have you prayed about this to God? Because I think so often people come when it's too late, or they're just so desperate, and they want immediate relief. God doesn't always relieve us immediately, amen? And so they seek God, who knows how long they prayed for. It says this, and verse 19 they prayed which goes to point back after the prayer prayer always leads to one thing then the mystery was revealed to daniel in a vision of the of the night then daniel blessed the god of heaven you see prayer always ends with praise even before the outcome you see, he may have gotten the vision from God, he may have gotten the answer from God, but he still doesn't know what the answer from Nebuchadnezzar is going to be. He still doesn't know if Nebuchadnezzar is going to kill him and stay to his word. He doesn't know that. He just knows, man, I got an answer and I'm going to praise God for the answer I got despite the outcome of the answer. How often do we praise God after we know the results that we go seeking? But how often do we pray and pray and pray and never receive results and continue to praise God for who he is? That's what Daniel did. Because the sovereignty of God is true. God is in control of all things. Therefore, God ought to always 
get praise and honor and glory despite the outcome. Amen? But how often do we wait and wait and wait, and then, oh, when things happen the way we want it to happen, then we'll praise God. No, we praise God through it all. We say praise God through the problem, not at the end with an answer. Amen? And so, leads us to this. He begins to praise God. He's, then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Bless the name of God forever and ever and ever. He understood who God was. He understood that God was sovereign in control of all things and just bless the Lord over and over and over again. That's what those first few verses tell us. Bless the name, bless the name, bless the name, bless the name of God. So for me, to you this morning, how often in our prayer life are we praying and praising at the same time? They must go hand in hand. Which leads us to this. The last point is this. All this leads to one thing. Back to the sovereignty of God. After the problem, after the prayer, after the praise, it leads us to what? The provider. The sovereign God. The one who's in control of all things. He says this. To whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons and removes kings and sets up kings and gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and in the light dwells in him. To you, O God, my Father, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might and, and have made known to me what we have asked of you. For you have made known to us The kings matter. You see, we do have a great sovereign God, but even in his sovereignty, he is a great provider. Amen? And so in the problem, and in the prayer, and in the praise, God offers the solution himself. You see, Daniel understood that. When Daniel said, oh, I see that there's a God that provides all things, he he provides them two things in particular in this passage. The first one is this. He provides them with what? Wisdom. You see, those men, those four men, Daniel in particular, is going to need a lot of wisdom outside of himself. Because even the Chaldeans, the the enchanters, the sorcerers, the, the magicians, they knew, hey, we don't have the answer. And yet Daniel said, I know who has the answer. Doesn't that sound familiar? Remember Joseph? Remember Joseph was pulled into the king and the king said to him, interpret my dream and what he said, I don't have the answer, but I know who does have the answer. It's God and God alone. All through scripture we see the men of God pointing it back to the wisdom of God. And so in that moment he offers them great wisdom. Because it's going to take a lot of godly wisdom to interpret a dream that the king doesn't even know himself. You see, that's going to point back to there is a God who knows all things, even the innermost parts of the king's heart and mind that no one else knows and the king himself doesn't know it, but there's a God that sits on the throne ruling over all things, even to the very little detail of a king's dream in his bed. And he reveals it to Daniel. You see, when we seek God, God offers us tons and tons and tons of wisdom. That's the first thing we see in this text. I think Daniel believed what was true in Proverbs 21. 
verse 1, it says this. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Daniel understood that. Daniel understood that the king was not a man of his own, but even this wicked, wicked king was in the hand of God, and God could do whatever he wanted to with King Nebuchadnezzar. And he was revealed that through the wisdom of God. He understood, man, God, you are in control of all things. You have given me the wisdom of the heart of this man because the heart of this man lies in your hand already. The second thing that we see in this text is this power. It's going to take a lot of power, a lot of confidence to stand before a king and reveal to what the king that no one else could. That power is only going to come from Christ Jesus and Jesus alone. Daniel understood that. And the last one is this. The ultimate one is this. There had to be ultimate revelation. He needed the wisdom to, to, to know what to say. He, he needed the power to say it. But he needed, the, he needed the knowledge to know what to say. And God revealed that to Daniel. And so church this morning... I don't know what problem that you're facing. I don't know where you are in life. But I'm confident of this and this alone. That that it's what Jesus said. That he'll never leave us or forsake us. That he'll go with us wherever we go. That when we don't have words to pray and words to say that the Holy Spirit will intercede for us. I just wonder for us. Has the problem become bigger than our prayers? Do we believe that God is all-powerful in control of all things? What kept striking me as I read this text, the wisdom of God, the knowledge of God, the sovereignty of God, there is a part that we, the people of God, get to, to involve ourselves in the sovereignty of God. It's through our, our, our adoration and praise to Him, but it's through our dependence on Him as well. Pastor Chapel, are we a dependent church? Are you a dependent individual? You see, that's what made Daniel, Daniel, is he was as wise as they came and as smart as they came, but he was totally dependent on the Lord. Is that true for you and you and you and you and me? Because if that's true for me, if that's really true for me, I'll get calluses on my forehead and my knees because I'm crying out to God. Is that true for us? And we can say amen to God's sovereignty all day. And it will always be an amen that it's true. But what do our lives say in response to that? Are we dependent on ourselves, the internet, one another? You fill in the blank. If there's any dependence outside of ourselves, outside of God, we're not dependent on God at all. And yet, do we believe this morning that no matter what the problem is, prayer will be our answer. And in that prayer, we will praise God continuously, despite the outcome. It's what we'll see in a few weeks. Remember what the, four men, the three men in the, the fiery furnace said. Hey, whether we live or die, We're going to give praise to God. 
That's in essence what they said as they're about to be thrown into the furnace. Hey, you can kill us, but we'll still praise God for it. And if he delivers us, we'll still praise God for it. Is that true for us, Palace Chapel? You see, this morning we're going to come to the Lord's Supper. And we're going to come as a remembrance of the great sacrifice that God gave for us. And as we remember that this morning, I, I ask that you would remember whatever the problem is, that the cross is bigger than the problem. The cross is bigger than the problem. Now, that doesn't mean you'll get the answer you want. But God is sovereign in control of all things. Good results, poor results, bad results, surprising results. God's still in control of it all. Do we believe that because of the cross of Jesus this morning? Let's pray. God, you are the great provider. I pray that I, God, would be a man that's totally dependent on you. God, I pray that we'd have a people in this church this morning that would be totally dependent on you. God, we need you desperately. I pray that our prayers are big prayers, God-sized prayers that you can only answer. Whatever that looks like, God, I pray that you would begin to lay on the hearts of men and women in this auditorium this morning prayers that supersede them, that makes them dependent on you. God, I pray for conversion. That, that is a prayer that's dependent on you. I pray that hearts are changed. I, I pray for, for hundreds of people, even next week, to come to this place to see, to hear, and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that, God. That's a big prayer. Apart from you, God, we can do nothing. That's what you tell us in your word. And apart from you that day, in the king's palace, in the king's throne room, Daniel was totally dependent on you. And you provided great power and great wisdom and great revelation. I pray that be true for us here at Palace Chapel. Lead us and guide us as we remember all that your son Jesus did for us on the cross. There's no greater provision that any man has ever given to, to, to mankind than his own life for us. You were so clear. While yet we were still sinners, you died for us. That is your sovereign plan, God. I pray in these moments we worship you, the sovereign God, the one who holds all things in his hands. Pray this in the mighty name of Christ Jesus.